Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Good Socrates. Gentle Hermogenes. We have been debating over on the porch of Archon, and now I ask you, if you will be so good, what is your own view of the truth or correctness of names? Tell me more. I say that the name of each thing is only that which anybody agrees to call it. A worthy proposition. But Alcibiades says there are true names in nature, and we must seek those above all others which are false. Well, suppose that I call a man a horse, or a horse a man. You mean to say that a man will be rightly called a horse by me and rightly called a man by the rest of the world? No, a horse is a horse. Of course. Of course. Well, that's all I can say for now. What do you mean? The rest of what I know is behind this wall. That wall? It is a pay wall. It will cost you 48 drachmas to hear the rest of what I know. But does that not contradict what we know to be right and useful? It'll cost you 48 drachmas to hear the answer to that question. But knowledge is free, and freedom is virtue, and virtue is eternal, therefore knowledge is... uh, How does the rest of it go? 48 drachmas. Talk to the hand, because the tunic ain't listening. Wow, I am so disillusioned. What if the Republic desperately needed this knowledge, but no man could give you the money? (laughs) Hmm. Thousands of years from now, people will hear of this and despise you because all wisdom will be free. I wouldn't bet on that. In fact, listen to this conversation. And now he believes the unexamined life is not worth what they're charging for it these days. Colin McEnroe. That's right. And in fact, in reality, or at least in the reality of the Socratic dialects, I think there was a guy who was charging for it. His name was like Prodicus or something. And Socrates throws shade on him. I mean, back in Athens at that time, you could sort of, you could be in a position basically to teach somebody everything that anybody knew. So for like 50 drachmas or something, this guy Prodicus would basically teach you everything that there was. Uh, and Socrates doesn't think much of him. It's like, why are you charging all this money for stuff like that? Uh, unfortunately, that problem has not completely erased itself. And we deal with this all the time uh, on this show because we're constantly trying to research things that we're interested in doing shows about and find out who's done the most interesting work about them and who might make a good guest. And we often run into these paywalls. Um, and there is a movement uh, to do something about that. But it's not a movement that has completely uh, completed its work. So we're going to have a conversation about this today, about the openness, uh, what, what, what's now called the open access movement within academia, within uh, scientific research also. Uh, So joining us right now from the NPR New York studios, Laura McKenna, contributing writer for The Atlantic, former professor of political science at Ramapo College, also has taught at Hunter and Teachers College, uh, and has written a lot about this. Also joining us by phone, Kathleen Fitzpatrick, associate executive director uh, 
uh, and Director of Scholarly Communication for the Modern Language Association. So, Laura McKenna, I think it's helpful because not everybody uh, has had this experience or knows what JSTOR is or, or anything like that. It's helpful to just kind of walk us through a case in point. So one of the things that you're interested in, in, in a, at a personal level uh, is autism. So explain what you discovered when you went looking for the latest research on autism. Sure, Colin. Thank, first of all, thanks so much for having me on today. This is a topic I feel very passionate about, so I'm happy to have this this time to chat with you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in university system for many years. I was a college professor, and then my son couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. He was two years old, and he wasn't hitting his milestones. I had to take some time away from the university. And, you know, like any parent whose child is has got a, a problem— it's distressing. My first instinct was to go to the Internet to find out more about this. I didn't know anything about autism. I had no experience in this, and I suddenly had a child who was having temper tantrums and couldn't talk. So I went to the Internet, and I started, you know, wanted to know what the latest research was. My background is political science. I, I had no background in this sort of thing. And, um, you know, went to Handy Google. And started plugging in, you know, keywords for autism, research, science, um, you know, all those important keywords. And what came up was I saw that there was research, you know. uh, uh, People had been writing really important, you know, papers on children who can't talk, correct methods for working with kids with autism. Um, there was there was real stuff going on at universities around the country, and when I tried to actually read these articles, I hit a paywall. Mm-hmm. I hit a paywall. I hit a page that said, "Yes, you can find out this information, but only if you pay thirty dollars, forty dollars." Some of these articles were sixty dollars to get. <laughs> so, I was frustrated. Um, at that time, I didn't have a university ID. I was home handling, you know, a crisis. And I couldn't read about it. And it was incredibly frustrating. So Kathleen Fitzpatrick, can you explain to us why that, why that, why does that exist? Why is there such a thing as JSTOR or any kind of paywall, particularly when some of this research is even taxpayer funded? Absolutely. Uh, and thank you for having me on today as well. Um, these paywalls originated at a moment when the only path for a scholar to get their work into circulation, whether it was circulating to other scholars and researchers within the university or if it was circulating to a broader public, the only path for that circulation was through a publisher. And the publisher does business by packaging up, editing that material, reviewing it for accuracy, printing it and distributing it and making it available through library subscriptions and other ways of getting the material out into circulation. Um, We, of course, live in a world today in which there are other paths other than through publishers. Scholars are now able to share their work directly with one another online. And so in in the age of the Internet, it's um, not at all surprising that both scholars and members of the interested public who want access to the information that, that that comes out of scholarly research are asking why they cannot get access to it in the ways that they believe they ought to be able to. 
And and uh, Laura McKenna, I mean, some of the one of the ironies of this is it's it, it's such a complicated pipeline by which this happens that um, it could be very easily be the case that the person who wrote the paper doesn't have free access to the published version of the paper. Well, universities are producing these articles. They are. They are. This is where all of the writing happens. The research. A, a scholar, you know, has a has an itch, has a research topic. And the university um, pays the the professor's salary. The, the you know professor will will work on a paper for years, sometimes two years, and then um, the article gets sent to a journal where the work is done by another uh, professor that's being paid by a university. The uh, another faculty member will edit. The um, article, screen it, make sure it's good, send it out to reviewers who are also other professors, and then it's sent to the publisher who, um, you know, puts it into print, and and then it, eventually it's sold back to the university. So the university is doing all this work for free, and then it has to buy it back. It's not even just the, the professor can't read it. It's the university's paying for work that it produced for free. In this, it's you know, kind of convoluted. It's very convoluted, and it seems um, sort of counter, I guess, kind of counterindicated compared to what we think of as a set of principles that evolve from the Enlightenment. I mean, if you think about Voltaire and Locke and people like that, their whole notion was that the democratization of knowledge uh, was what would lift mankind up out of superstition uh, and helplessness. And, and the, the, the best possible thing that could happen would be that everybody had pretty good access to what was known, what was understood. And, and at the highest levels of learning now, we've sort of created the op- opposite situation where you can't get stuff like this without either paying some insane amount of money or accessing it some other way. It, it's not surprising that there's, I mean, I don't know, are you surprised that there wasn't a rebellion sooner, Laura McKenna? Well, you know, academics are, you know, slow to make change. And, you know, in, there is no incentive, there was no incentive for professors to make any changes. You know, they want to get tenure, they, and in order to get tenure, you publish in the most prestigious journal. You don't get any rewards for having your articles read by a lot of people. You get rewarded for just getting published in the most prestigious journal possible. So without any, there was no pressure to do anything. Now, it's changing. It's changed a lot in the past few years, thanks to, to people like Kathleen, who's helping to you know, work within um, you know, the MLA community to, to put research out there. And there's other, there's other groups, too, that are, are putting it forward. I think if you talk to most professors, professors individually and say, don't you want your research to get read by a lot of people? They'll agree. And they say, yeah, you know, I think only five people read my article that I spent two years <laughs> writing. They want, they want their research to be read. But it's, it's, it's really how are we going to go about this? And, and we're in a transition period right now. Right. It probably depends on your research, too. If it's, you know, some very recherche thing about Derrida or something, probably the 38 people who are interested and who could understand it will read it through that pipeline. But if it's about Moby Dick, yeah, maybe you want a lot of people to read it. So Kathleen Fitzpatrick, what's the argument? What's the argument for freeing up all this information? 
There are several different arguments that, that have been made. Um, one you've already alluded to, and, and Laura has mentioned as well, that, that this work that is being produced within the Academy is already being funded, whether it's, it's by the public through research grants that are given in order to support the work that's being done by the researcher, or by the salaries of the institutions that, that, at which those scholars work. And given that, you know, it seems as though then the public should have access to the material that it is funding. The other um, aspect to this, though, is that um, many scholars benefit from getting their work out into more open circulation. I mean, you mentioned the case of the 38 people who might be interested in that paper on Derrida, but it's only by opening that paper up and by making it as publicly accessible as possible that we discover that, in fact, that might be of great interest and great use to some community that we don't know about. I find that and 39th so, person who's interested in it. Or even the 40th. You yeah. know, there, there, that there is a much broader audience for the kinds of work that scholars are doing today than I think many of us have been given to realize. We often think that scholars are, in their publications, having a conversation only amongst themselves. And really opening that conversation up in a way that the public has access to can create new audiences and new interest for the work that's being done on university campuses today. Now, I'm going to ask both of you to do uh, something basically kind of unfair, but uh, I have no alternative because we asked JSTOR, uh, who the, the creators of this the most frequently encountered paywall, if they'd like to come on today, and they thought about it, and they said no. Um, but So, I mean, I'll start with you, Kathleen. If JSTOR were here today, or if somebody who supports the existing system were here today, is there any compelling argument, something that would collapse, something, some kind of research or, or, or pu- publication or scholarship that wouldn't happen if you took that particular stream of money out or that exclusivity out or the publishing model uh, radically changed? Is there something that's good that happens now that wouldn't happen if, if we changed everything? I, I do think that there are things that we would miss if we took the, the, the funding stream entirely out of the publishing process. Publishers do add a lot of value to publications, perhaps less in, in their authoring or their editing, because that is, as Laura pointed out, done by scholars, than in the, the gathering together of an audience around those publications and of the, the making sure that those publications get to that audience. This is a crucial function that publishers can continue to serve. And those functions, um, frankly, cost money. For JSTOR to have the enormous platform that it has, um, it cannot it just simply can't be done for free. And so the, the JSTOR provides a great service um, in making all of this material accessible to those who happen to have access to it. They're also working, I mean, in, in, you know, to their credit, on creating new models through which individuals can gain access. There are means for members of the public to get access to a certain number of articles per month that will allow at least a basic peek into the research, if not full access. It's not a perfect model, and I don't think that anyone there would claim that it is, but they do still have to pay the bills for that platform. And so they need that revenue stream in order to keep the the platform itself alive. So Laura McKenna, maybe somebody would make the argument, well, 
Yeah, it's it's too bad that you can't read the raw research about autism, but but maybe ultimately without the right training, you wouldn't even necessarily process it all that well. And we know that talented science writers like Carl Zimmer or Patrick Scahill or somebody like that, you know, can get access uh, to what's behind the paywall and then write for more popular publications or maybe even for autism newsletters or, or, or whatever, um, something that's aimed at a more general audience. And so ultimately, no harm done. What would be your response to that? I don't know. I mean, I'm a I've got a PhD. I can understand the academic research. I I want access to the direct stuff. I don't want to read some filtered version in a, in another journal. It's, you know, there's a right to this information. As you said, you know, as a as a member of the public, I pay for this research with uh, my tax money, either for public colleges, for grants, and my son is going to go to college next year. A big chunk of his tuition, or not a big chunk, but a certain amount of his, a chunk of his tuition is 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 funding this research. I, I want to see it. I don't want to see it filtered through another source. And, and, and I think that there are a lot of people like that. You know, JSTOR, um, you know, reported that, you know, hundreds of millions of, of people have tried to get access to their to research on their websites and were denied. Um, you know, 100, I, I uh, 100, interview- 150 million was what I saw in one year. 150 million right, denied. And, yeah. I mean, people want to see it. They want to see the original. Why? Why give them, you know, um, a Reader's Digest version and a and another journal five years later? Um, you know, people are adults. Like, give them the real stuff. Um, you know, I I, I interviewed um, Richard Price, who owns um, who runs a, a website called Academia.edu, which a, helps a, to. And actually, if we could just pause that, I, I wanted to maybe take a break here and come back, and we can talk. Uh, I want to talk a lot about academia, academia.edu and about the other models that exist for disseminating this information in a way that doesn't involve a paywall. So maybe this is a good uh, point to pause with Laura McKenna and Kathleen Fitzpatrick. We'll come right back after this. Create a new society, we all become one. This is a revolution, the age of information. This is a revolution, All right, we're back. We're talking about the open access movement within academic research, um, and we're talking uh, about it with Laura McKenna, a contributing, contributing writer for The Atlantic, who's written uh, at least two uh, very substantive articles about it, uh, Kathleen Fitzpatrick, Associate Executive Director uh, and uh, Director of Scholarly Communication for the Modern Language Association. So let's shift gears here onto the ground that uh, Laura McKenna, you were talking about as we went into the break, which is there are now some other models for handling this. That don't involve paywalls. One of them is a kind of private sector and essentially uh, commercial model, notwithstanding the edu suffix uh, that it has uh, after its domain name, academia.edu. This is started with venture capital. Uh, and explain, Laura, what it is. It's it's like Facebook for academics. It's a geeky Facebook. Um, professors can uh, create a profile for themselves with a little picture, description of their you know where they're teaching, and they can upload um, various articles they've read. Not not just articles. They can put you know um, works in progress, uh, lecture notes, syllabi. They can upload it so that anybody can read it. In fact, and and offer comments and commentary on their work. 
uh, including uh, cat videos involving Diderot, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so, um, so now there's some really great things about this. But Kathleen Fitzpatrick, you've got your antennae up about this a little bit. You're you have some questions about whether or not. I mean, Richard Price, the guy who founded this, seems to have pretty ide- idealistic motives. I guess your question is: Is he always going to be the guy? Yeah, I, I I am less worried about Richard Price's motives than I am the motives of the folks who are funding academia.edu. The fact is, as you noted, it is a venture capital funded dot com startup. And at some point because of that, it's going to be required to turn a profit. Um, if it doesn't turn a profit, it will be sold and probably mined for parts. Um, but in the meantime, as long as it's still a functioning site in and of itself, they have to figure out how they're going to make some money off of it. And, you know, I, I am not opposed to making money. Um, I, as I noted with JSTOR, I think that these platforms require financial support in order to be sustainable. But I do think that scholars need to look very closely at exactly how a site like this is being funded and how its profit is being turned. I mean, if scholars aren't paying for that account to put their stuff online, Somehow or another, their work is being resold and remarketed otherwise. In the same way that with Facebook, you know that information about your interests is being sold to advertisers. Um, So I I just believe that that scholars need to be cautious and need to be aware that somewhere along the line, um, money is being made on the work that they are doing and to think about where they really want to invest their time and labor. Yeah, and of course, there's always the possibility that tomorrow morning, Rupert Murdoch will acquire the whole thing. Um, Absolutely. So, um, but as things stand, it, it, it does hold promise. And Laura McKenna, do you find it useful? I mean, it useful in the ways that JSTOR was not. Can you go on there and find out some of the stuff you want to know? Sure. And I, I, you know, interviewed some other professors who cur- who use it quite actively, and they found it useful. I mean, they, you know, they they noted, as Kathleen pointed out, that this is a for-profit venture, uh, but for them, it was working. And you know, they they've got incredible statistics. They've got thirty-six million monthly unique visitors to their website, which is pretty huge. And um, you know, they've uploaded 8 million papers on there. So you can search for anything all at the same place and the same location. You could go on there. And if you're interested in Descartes that day, you can find a Descartes paper. If you're interested in autism, you can find an autism paper. So, um, you know, it's there's profit being happen, happening either here or it's happening with Elsevier, academic publishers and these various, you know, search engines. They're all making money, um, but one model enables people to read papers for free. So that's that's kind of a good thing. Kathleen Fitzpatrick, is there a model that you think holds out more promise, a model that's less commercial, more scholar-driven, uh, that, I, that, that, that solves the same problem? I do, in fact, and I think that that, that model is located within the membership organizations, the professional societies that scholars belong to. That These professional societies, like us at the Modern Language Association, are increasingly in a position in which we need to be the ones to support the communication amongst our members and between our members and the broader reading public that might be interested in their work. So for our part, we've started a platform called MLA Commons, which allows any member to, like 
academia.edu, create an account with a profile, share information um, with other members, participate in a range of discussions, and then that profile is connected to a repository that's a, a library quality, high value repository in which members can deposit whatever um, aspects of their work they want to share, whether it's um, papers that they're publishing or presentations that they've given at conferences or um, lecture notes from their classes, anything that they want to get out into circulation. And then the public has full access to that material that they share. We're hoping to be able to expand that model to, to um, federate with other scholarly societies in the coming year so that more, um, more scholars can take advantage of a platform like this that's being run by a membership organization, meaning that not only do um, is it free to those members to participate, and not only is the material free to the public to access, but the members of the society have a say in the future of that platform and can participate in its governance and can assist with its development into the future. So, and by the way, for I, for I have neglected to mention his name so far, but if all of this sounds a little bit familiar to you, even though you don't follow this kind of thing, you may recall that, that Aaron Swartz, who was much publicized for uh, having essentially hacked uh, um, into JSTOR and downloaded uh, millions of articles uh, and was being prosecuted for it, and then after a, a two-year uh, battle, legal battle, uh, took his own life. We did a whole show a, a while back about, about Aaron Swartz. This is one of the ways in which this topic got, interest, uh, got introduced to the public. We've just got a couple of minutes left here, and so let me. I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here because I'm very much on the pitchfork shaking side of opening this stuff all up. But let me just sort of see if I can sort of come up with a counter argument. So, Laura McKenna, maybe one counter argument would be: doesn't this, doesn't some of this? Uh, particularly maybe something like academia edu create a signal to noise problem that there, there, suddenly there's a lot of information out there that that seems to have roughly the same status except some of its notes some of its better vetted than other information that you know if i'm reading an article by david brian davis in the journal of southern slavery studies or i just made up a journal but you know that the, there's a the vetting process that i understand there's peer review there's this there's that that you know whereas you're leading me out onto a different kind of terrain where really I'm going to have to make all kinds of discernments uh, about how good the thing is I'm reading, how much of my weight I should put on this particular stone as I cross the river of knowledge. What's your response to that? I mean, that is a problem. I mean, there are some new journals that have popped up that that don't have the same rigor as some of the traditional uh, journals that are really run by, you know, run by the top members of the profession. And, um, you know, now we're going to expect the public to know the difference between new up-and-coming journal versus old, prestigious, you know, smart journal. That is a problem. But that's part of the, you know, the good part of the, the dangers of democracy. It's just having a lot of information out there. I think, you know, it's worth having some, you know, some problems in the, in the goal, greater goal of having more information that's available to the public. And, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, as we kind of wind down here, I'll ask you essentially the same question. You know, uh, we were chasing snowflakes that were sometimes hard to get. Now you're offering us a blizzard. Um, does that create uh, new problems in that sense? 
You know, people have been complaining about information overload for as long as there has been information, I think. Um, I, I believe that, that there are models for open access dissemination of scholarly work that are perfectly compatible with the kinds of peer review that scholars want to have um, employed to, to figure out what work is really authoritative and what isn't. There are many open access journals that have just as rigorous a selection process as do their, their closed access peers. But one of the things that I think we need to work on, and this is not just within um, the, the academy, but in the public at large, we really need to think about developing better filters that allow us to, to really pinpoint the kinds of work that we are interested in and to get recommendations from our peers, from people that we trust for the work that's going to be most of most interest to you. So that Laura, as she's searching for particular articles, about autism would be able to um, get recommendations from other people who know um, of the work that is going to be of most interest to her and of most use. All right. We're going to have to stop it there because we have a, a scientific conversation coming up about uh, much the same question with Nihar Desai. Uh, we'll do that after this. But thanks very much. Kathleen Fitzpatrick and Laura McKenna will be back with even more of this topic. What kind of scientific research happens that you never find out about? I want to know it all. Every how and every why. This Hail, Socrates, keeper of wisdom. What is it now? We citizens ask to know, how long should you be in a relationship before you break wind in front of the other person? Paywall. Please, it's important. Paywall. Just this once. Okay, six months. Or one month after saying I love you. Unless the other person farts in front of you sooner, in which case, yeah, you can totally let it fly. Thank you, Socrates. Mm-hmm. No more freebies. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Voltaire. For show pages, articles, and the Here and Now staff scholarly research on ovulation and lap dancers, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the Tournament of Books. And now, back to Colin. I had no idea that Socrates dealt with those kinds of questions. But I suppose in his time, he was the only person you could ask. All right. So uh, now it's time to continue a conversation that in some ways we started a while back on a different show. And Nihar Desai is back with us, an assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine and an investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research uh, and Evaluation. First of all, welcome back to our show. Thanks, Colin. It's great to be with you. And so the last time you were on, we, we didn't have a lot of time for this, and so we really wanted to schedule some more time to talk about this. That So ultimately, one of the things that people like you have looked into is how much scientific or medical research goes on in this country that, that never sees the light of day or is just never accessible to, to the average person. Is there a way that you can kind of describe that phenomenon or, or how big that problem might be? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's great. And I think... Um, you know, th this is a topic that has been spoken about um, for, for many years, but I think it's finally sort of risen to the, um, in many ways, to the top uh, of the issues that funders, investigators, patients, uh, advocacy groups are really sort of, you know, thinking about. And, and I think that, you know, in many ways it, it is long overdue, but we're, um, I think, you know, we're very much heading in the right direction. So I, I guess I would sort of start with 
um, some basic, you know, sort of ideas and, and, and concepts, and, and that is that, you know, research is fundamental to scientific progress and to the clinical care that we deliver every day. I'm a, I'm a cardiologist, you know, here at Yale. I love taking care of patients. I love talking to them um, and sort of helping them navigate through uh, very difficult decisions. And, and the research that is conducted is, is vitally important to sort of inform the decisions that, that patients and providers make every day. And, you know, we've long thought of clinical trials as the gold standard for evaluating the efficacy and the safety of new treatments and strategies. And so you know, there have been a lot of resources put into um, the design and the conduct of, of these large clinical trials. Many, many patients have volunteered um, to serve in these human experiments. <clears throat> and I think in, in some ways we've then sort of lost a little focus because um, many of these, of, of these studies are then never disseminated. Uh, are never shared with the scientific community. And, and, and that leads to several um, really troublesome things. So one, um, you know, the, the ethical mandate that we sort of have as investigators to the, to the patients that we recruited uh, into these studies, we sort of, you know, leave that commitment unfulfilled. And secondly, um, patients and providers then can't really make the best decisions because they don't know the, the, the latest information that's out there, the findings that people um, have, but that are being sequestered and not being shared in a systematic and transparent way. And so, you know, we've done a study, and, and others, frankly, around the country have been, you know, sort of talking about this as well, um, where we found that, you know, up to half of the clinical trials that are conducted uh, never see the light of day. The, the results are never disseminated uh, through peer-reviewed publication. Uh, the results are never posted on any sort of public uh, website, even though, frankly, there are legislative requirements that force investigators to do that. And so we were hoping to really shed light on this, and, um, and that, that's really what I'm sort of delighted to, to, to share with you and to talk about. And as you know, in January, the British Medical Journal went even, high, went even higher than your 50% number and said almost 75% of clinical trials are still not published within two years of completion. So I have to ask, I mean, in whose interest is that? I mean, if, I mean, not only is it obviously frustrating for the people who are subjects in the in the clinical trial, especially if you were one of the people, you know, drinking a placebo instead of getting the wheatgrass or whatever it was, uh, and not only the people who could benefit from this research, but how about the people who, this, the researchers doing the trials? I mean, it would seem to me they would really want their work to come out. So what's the obstacle to the publication of these studies? Well, that, so, so that's a really interesting point that you, that you raised. So, um, so we actually did a recent analysis looking at clinical trials that were led by academic institutions. In fact, the leading academic institutions based on the amount of funding they had from the National Institutes of Health. And we sort of said, you know what? Sure, maybe there are some gaps in the, in the dissemination of clinical trials results, but I bet if we look at the academic medical centers that are leading clinical trials, the rates of publication will be really high. And sure enough, we were disappointed to find um, that the rates of um, you know, disseminating the findings of clinical trials, even when led by academic medical centers, was very, very low. So uh, you know, less than 50% were disseminated. In fact, it was about 35% or so. Um, that were disseminated within 24 months. And so you might say, well, gosh, what are those investigators doing? They're, they're academics. Uh, why aren't they sharing? Um, why aren't they disseminating? And, and I think in some ways 
it, it illuminates a, a broader uh, concern about the whole research enterprise. So if you're an investigator and you have funding and, and you have a sort of a, a series of experiments or things that you want to do, and the first one turns out to not work the way that you uh, were hoping that it was going to work, um, it may not be in your best interest to sort of put that out there because maybe the rest of your funding may be compromised. Um, and so we have a situation here where there, there's a misalignment of, of the incentives. Um, and so it, it's really unfortunate that even in academic medical centers, places that are sort of committed, their fundamental commitment is to advance knowledge generation um, and to sort of add to uh, the health and well-being of the communities they serve, um, even there, uh, you know, there are clear gaps and places for us to get better. Now, my understanding is that some of the federal research funding mechanisms are starting to attach a mandate to this, uh, that at the National Institutes of Health level, there are starting to be mandates to say, look, you know, if we're going to give you this money, you're going to have to publish something. You're, you can't just sit on stuff. Um, so how's that working out? Yep. So that, that's exactly right, Colin. So um, actually, as part of the Food and Drug Administration Amendments Act, uh, the Congress actually passed a law uh, saying that within 12 months of completing a clinical trial, you have to post the results on a website. And this, this platform is called clinicaltrials.gov. Anybody can access it. Every clinical trial is actually logged on this website. And um, unfortunately, um, some colleagues of ours from Duke did a study and found that uh, 13% of clinical trials that were subject to this mandate actually complied with the legislative requirement. Uh, and, and that might sort of, you know, naturally ask, begs the next question of, well, how is that possible? And I think, it, you know, like many things in this space, even though there may be, um, you know, consensus documents and, and everyone agrees that this has to happen, there really isn't any meaningful enforcement mechanism. So if people don't do it, there's really no way to sort of hold people accountable for it. Now, I will grant you that there's a shift in, in, the, in the landscape here, that funders, even academic institutions themselves, are really sort of, you know, singing a very different tune now and saying, you know what, this is a serious problem, and, you know, maybe prior performance in terms of your compliance with these requirements is going to be integrated into um, our funding decisions, and maybe that will actually be, um, you know, what's required to sort of change behavior. But because up till now, even though we have the laws are on the books, um, our performance is, is very inadequate. Uh, and there really isn't any serious or meaningful enforcement mechanism to hold people accountable if they, if, if they don't comply. Now, we should talk about this, the serious implications of this, and some of them are long-term, just at the level of pure science. You want scientists to have access to the maximum amount, of, uh, maximum amount of data and knowledge in their field so that they can build on that, so that they can do uh, useful things. But there's short-term impl implications, too. I mean, in the case of Vioxx, you know, which uh, ultimately had to be pull pulled from the market, uh, one of the researchers, researchers just discovered there was research uh, that would have led to that conclusion faster, possibly saved lives or avoided uh, adverse health consequences if some of that information were flowing a little bit more freely. I mean, I assume that's one of the concerns here, right, that you could literally save lives if you knew more of what was not known right now. Well, with, without a doubt, and that's obviously the, the, the gravest concern here, is um, especially when there are clinical trials of uh, experimental uh, devices or, or drugs or strategies, and that those are not shared with the public, and that raises serious 
safety concerns. It raises, you know, serious concerns about the quality of care um, that, that's actually happening every day in practice because people have chosen uh, to sequester that information and keep it out of the public's light um, for a myriad of issues. Uh, but I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And, and unfortunately, we do have a, um, a, a sad history in this, uh, in this case where, um, you know, there are some very well-known examples where, you know, results were known, data was available, um, it was unfavorable either to the drug company or to a particular investigator or to uh, another uh, stakeholder, and, and they chose to, uh, to try and hide that and conceal that information. So another concern that people might, may have, though, is that um, if everything gets published, if, if all information is disseminated pretty freely, you know, some information turns out to be wrong or some data turns out to be wrong or conclusions turn out to be wrong. There are sites like Retraction Watch, which not everybody reads, but which, you know, I mean, uh, I could very easily encounter what looked like you know, a, a pretty good randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group, multi-center study showing me that I need to drink, you know, a quart of pomegranate, pomegranate juice every day and own three rabbits and my heart will be... Uh, better or safer, and then I might not see the retraction watch thing a little bit later, saying, "Nah, actually, you probably shouldn't be doing that." There was a there was some kind of misrepresentation of the data. So, so talk about that. Not not all of us have the ability or even the watchfulness to be able to evaluate all this stuff. Well, well, I th- well, I think that's a very very good point, and I think you know our desire to sort of you know hold people accountable and say, "Look, if you've done these experiments, if you've done these trials." you have an obligation to sort of, you know, post those results and better yet to actually disseminate them through peer-reviewed publication. So the process of peer review is not sort of obviated, um, you know, in this, in this system. It's, it's actually, it heightens the importance um, of it because we desperately need the rigors of peer review to make sure that what gets out um, is the highest quality science and that, um, you know, that the public um, particularly the, the lay public, when they're sort of getting messages about, you know, clinical information and, and clinical decisions, um, that they're getting the best science that has undergone uh, very, very rigorous review. So we desperately need the peer review process to work. I think where we're coming from is to say people have an ethical imperative to try and publish these data. Um, and the best way to disseminate it is through um, peer review and in a, and in a medical journal. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, on the flip side, we've seen a huge explosion in the number of medical journals that how do we sort of tease out, you know, signal from noise and, and, and what's real and what's sort of pseudoscience. Um, and, and I have to tell you that uh, a couple things. So, so one, I think you're probably giving the, the, quote, most prestigious journals maybe too much credit sometimes, um, you know, that they're just as susceptible to having, you know, issues and lapses um, as maybe lesser-known journals, um, but secondly, that the way to enrich our scientific enterprise is is not by um, you know shutting things out, um, but rather it's to make things more open and to get more out there. And and you know there will be a, a winnowing process, and there will be a way that people can um, can tease out the signal from the noise. Um, and and I have faith in in providers, in, in patients, in advocacy groups, um, you know, for, for doing all of the important things that are required from taking the information that's in a journal and applying it to the patient that's, that's in front of us uh, in the bedside or the office. 
We're talking to Nihar Desai right now. What we should say, I was going to go to Brett, I don't know if he's still there, but um, the uh, Nihar Desai, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine and investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. So uh, up against this, there is this tremendous movement towards open access, and, and you're, you're part of that. In fact, it's like my favorite acronym that I've seen in a really <laughs> long time, the Yale Open Data Access Project, uh, otherwise known as YODA. Uh, tell us about YODA. Yeah, so, so YODA is a, a really um, exciting project, and, and I have to say that um, there's two very visionary people that, that started it uh, a number of years ago, Harlan Krumholtz and, and Joe Ross, uh, who are both faculty members here at the Yale School of Medicine and also at CORE. And, and what YODA does is it actually works with uh, device or pharmaceutical manufacturers who are interested in sharing their data. It becomes an intermediary. So the device or the drug uh, companies sort of transfer the clinical trials data sets to Yoda, to Yale, and then we work with outside investigators who have scientific questions that they want to ask. They're interested in accessing uh, these data for their own sort of scientific um, purposes, and, and we work with them to sort of facilitate that uh, data sharing and, and so that they can have access uh, with the ultimate aim then of, of generating new knowledge um, and advancing the clinical research enterprise. So there's, this is part, uh, as I say, of a big movement. There are all kinds of things like the Public Library of Science and Galaxy Zoo, which is a citizen science site, and Math Overflow uh, and ResearchGate. Um, and, but I'm wondering how much the, all of this kind of stuff, the idea of making a lot of stuff pretty public and accessible and maybe even involving people who, who aren't tenured scientists but you know, might be pretty good at solving uh, a math problem or, or on a crowdsourcing basis solving a, an astronomy or math pro, pro problem. This is all pretty exciting. On the other hand, there's still stuff like grants and jobs and tenure and dare I even mention patents, which I assume some scientific researchers are, are really interested in getting. So, I mean, isn't there kind of a clash of cultures there, this notion that information should be open and free versus a system that still rewards certain kinds of behaviors and deprives uh, researchers of rewards if they don't participate in that system. Well, well, I think you're right, and I think that you have put your finger on one of the real tensions that, you know, this entire movement um, has, has raised, and that is, um, you know, kind of the way that our academic and promotion system, you know, kind of works um, and kind of what data transparency and data sharing means for that. And, and so I think there are a couple of important things we should we should think about. So one is we're not advocating that the people that, you know, have spent, you know, four or five, six years of their lives collecting this data um, immediately share it with everyone so that everyone can, can use it and start, you know, publishing the results before they have a chance to. Um, so what we've advocated for and actually what the uh, International Committee for Medical Journal Editors recently announced as a draft policy was that once a clinical trial is completed and the initial manuscript um, is presented, so the, the, the results are first reported and presented, that then there's a 6- to 12-month period in which time the investigator should sort of make arrangements to make that data available. Now, let's be clear. Does that mean that, you know, in 10 months or in a year, can other people, you know, start looking and, and doing additional analyses and, you know, looking at things maybe that the investigators didn't think of? 
Uh, yes, that's exactly what we want them to do. Um, but frankly, the investigators that did the work um, have a serious advantage. They have a, a big head start. Um, they know the data better than anyone else. But yet, you know, we want to think of these data as being a, a public good, um, that, you know, this is for the scientific community. Uh, you know, we want to be respectful of the investigators and the patients, frankly, that, that participated. We have to figure out some way to give them credit and, and to recognize the efforts that, that they made, but that this really is an opportunity for us to use the data that's available to try and advance the care of patients, to try and relieve suffering, to try and improve health and health care. Um, and that shouldn't just be the purview of a small group of investigators. We really need the best minds helping us. And, and Colin, I think the point you made earlier about, you know, that we need more multidisciplinary um, work in this area. Maybe we do need to work with the mathematicians and the bioengineers and the bioinformaticists um, to really think about new ways of analyzing data. Um, and, and that type of collaborative work uh, can only happen when data sharing is the expected norm, uh, not the exception to the rule. Oh, we're almost out of time, so don't give me a long answer to this. But in a, in a way, we're, we're right on the knife's edge of two different things, right? One of them is the democratization of knowledge and the notion that people who go in to scientific research and science believe in science, believe in the growth of knowledge to benefit civilization. But uh, on the other hand, there is a reward system, and that's one of the other reasons people do stuff, right? Because they get rewarded for it. So the more you do not democratize that— you could disincentivize some of that. As I say, you've maybe got about a minute to talk about that. Yeah, no, I, and, and I think, you know, that is also the imperative that I think academic institutions have to rethink the way that we, um, how we've configured our reward system. And, and what does it mean for an investigator that created a very, very rich data set that was subsequently used to, you know, have five or 10 or 20 important findings that fundamentally change practice, even though they weren't necessarily the ones that may have written those papers, but the hard work that they did to put that data together um, was the foundation for that. And, and how are we going to recognize that? And how, 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 how are we going to sort of pay tribute uh, to those investigators that did that hard work? And I think, you know, you've raised a very important question. And I think a lot of us in the field um, are really committed to sort of working through uh, the very, very difficult issues that are required. But, but I will tell you, it is well worth it. Um, this is a movement that um, has a lot of momentum behind it. Um, it, is, it is the right way. It's the better way. Um, and, and there are certainly going to be some speed bumps along the way. Uh, but we'll get there. Well, you know, statues are always great. We can do a Nahar Desai statue uh, out on Trumbull Street. Uh, Nahar Desai, assistant professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine and an investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. Thank you. Dear Socrates, I've brought you this tea to drink. It smells interesting. What is it? Uh, hemlock tea. What is hemlock? Paywall. You brought me this tea. Uh, you tell me what is hemlock. Paywall. Ah, I see. You are being cute. Well, bottoms up. <sighs> 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 <sighs>